Thanks for joining me here on Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, the founder of Bare Bones Yoga. I'm a yoga teacher with over 15 years of experience, a certified personal trainer, and an entrepreneur. My mission is to help yoga teachers transform their teaching by mastering the fundamentals of anatomy. By learning anatomy in my easy step-by-step way, you'll be able to confidently share it in your cues, easily create sequences, and you'll eagerly answer student questions. And all along the way, you'll increase your impact and earning potential. On the podcast here, you will hear anatomy lessons, stories from teachers, interviews with others in the field, and a dose of personal development. Once you listen to today's episode, go ahead and visit barebonesyoga.com, my website, for free resource guides for teachers. Download any and all that are there, including one of my most popular tools, my sequence building template. And if you'd like, send me a one-line email with the answer to this question. What's your biggest frustration right now as a yoga teacher? And I'm happy to do some brainstorming with you in a free coaching session. My email address is karen at barebonesyoga.com. Thanks for taking the time to listen today. Let's get to today's episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, and this is episode 165. I am recording this on a very snowy day here in Boston. It's January 7th, 2022. This episode will go live on Monday, which if you're uh, a faithful podcast listener and you listen on Mondays, will be Monday, January 10th, 2022. Otherwise, you're listening to it whenever you are, and I am so grateful that you are doing that. Today, I have a super special episode because I have an interview with a functional podiatrist, and her name is Dr. Emily Splickle, and she has so much information to share with us. I just finished, literally just finished the interview, and my head is so full, my heart is full, and I am just so glad that I had an opportunity uh, to connect with her and ask her a whole bunch of questions about the foot. And when you think about it as yoga teachers, so much of the cues that we share uh, have to do with foundation. We go into a lot around that, as well as talk about the anatomy of the foot, as well as talk talk about the contribution of fascia and her perspective on how the foot is the connected um piece component to the entire body uh, and and the um, perspective that the body in order to continue to be healthy uh, should work in an integrated fashion. There's a lot of that philosophy weaved in and out of our conversation today. So I know that you are really, really going to love this and I would love to hear any comments you have. So as always, after you listen, please comment on my Instagram post about the podcast or just send me a direct message and let me know what came to you as you were listening. The other thing I'll just give you a heads up about at the end of the episode, uh, Dr. Splickle does offer a number of links. Uh, One is to her training, which sounds absolutely amazing, as well as some products that she sells because she is the founder of a company, Naboso Technology, that has a number of products, including a sensory yoga mat that I think you're really going to love and might actually want to, uh, to invest in. So that's the intro. 
And that's the um, the content of today's episode. I'm just going to close um, this brief intro by number one, just reminding you that my weekly free 30 minute yoga classes continue to happen. I would love, love, love for you to be there. So please check the virtual classes page on my website every week, as well as my Instagram for the links to join those free classes. They're free and just 30 minutes. So super easy to integrate into your schedule. And then the next and final thing I'm going to say before we kick off the episode interview is to just wish you again, a happy new year. I know when I spoke last week, I talked briefly about vision setting. I want you to just keep an eye on my Instagram because I'm talking a lot uh, over the last couple of days and into next week about uh, a particular exercise you can participate in with me. And it's not a physical exercise, it's a mental exercise that I'll guide you through all around goal setting. So you'll find the details of that on my Instagram and, um, and that's it. So I hope you're having a good new year so far. Let's get into that interview. I introduce to you, Dr. Emily Splickle. Splickle, here we go. Hi. Hello. Oop, I am on there. Good. Perfect. How are you? Very good. Very good. So the listeners can't um, see because um, we're not going to use the video, but I want to just acknowledge right away. The pink behind you is totally my color. So oh, I- okay. Oh. <laughs> I'm very much that kind of like pink tone person. My branding colors, I recently changed them and uh, very much into that. that oh, color As you can tell from the shirt I'm wearing. Yes, I'll tell my husband because he designed it. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for joining me. I am so excited to have you here on the show. I've wanted to have you on for a, a while now, actually going back to when you were on Rick Ritchie's show. Do you remember oh, that? Yeah. And because I'm a CPT and I follow him on Instagram and listen to his podcast, when I heard you speak on that episode, which was probably over a year ago, Mm -hmm. uh, I said, oh, I want to have her on the show. And it's just been fits and starts. And now that I have you on my Instagram, I was like constantly like, oh, I want to reach out to her. So thank you for joining. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you're so welcome. (laughs) So, um, you know, the, you probably have a sense from the title of the podcast that it's for yoga teachers and, you know, most of my listeners are yoga teachers and, um, because our work involves having people in bare feet, I thought Mm -hmm. it would be so great to give people a sense of barefoot, maybe technology, but also just barefoot health, (laughs) if you want to, if that's a term. And um, because I teach anatomy, however, I don't go into massive detail around the foot until something comes up where they might ask me a question about it. I kind of stay with gross motor movement and and that kind of thing, not to downplay the importance because obviously Mm -hmm. it is very important. Um, I also thought today then would be a great opportunity to give the listeners who are yoga teachers um, a general sense of the anatomy of the foot. So I've got some questions for you to kind of guide us. Um, I think a great place to start is if you could tell the listeners what it is that you do and who you help and how do you help them? 
Yeah, sure. So um, I am a functional podiatrist, a human movement specialist. I've been in the fitness industry for over 20 years. And within the fitness industry, started as personal trainer, group exercise, but then quickly shifted onto the side of um, program development, designing classes, and all the classes were barefoot, which kind of ties in back into the podiatry side of things. Um, but then also the training of the trainer or the education side. Um, and I look at my fitness background as this foundation to the my entire career. And then I sprinkled in the podiatry. So this foot knowledge, and then I sprinkle in the human movement, or I have a master's in human movement. And then I really connect those three perspectives into the programming I create, books I write, consulting, and then the courses as well. So did you know in the chronology of that, did you did you start out thinking you wanted to be a podiatrist first, or did that come after the personal training piece? That definitely came after. And I was not like, oh, I want to specialize in feet. <laughs> that was not <laughs> what was in my mind. Um, I actually love fitness. I love movement. I was teaching classes. Um, I used to be a competitive gymnast. So that kind of ties in that ironically, that is a barefoot sport. Um, but I started getting injured. And I think it was just from 13 years as a competitive athlete and just putting that stress on my body. And then I was using my body as my tool as a group exercise instructor and started getting injured and overuse injuries that I looked at advanced education or career paths that could still tie in the fitness and the movement, but be less reliant on my body as my means to make money, <laughs> essentially. So then that's where I started looking at medical schools, chiropractic, physical therapy, and then podiatry. And I got accepted into podiatry, stayed within fitness, my entire podiatry training. Like on the side, you were sort of doing classes still. Yeah. And started to connect what I was learning in podiatry school to my clients and to what I was learning from fitness certifications and then started to be like, well, why this? Why not that? And then it really opened Pandora's box into how I apply feet to fitness and movement in really what is my, my brand or my, my perspective now. Got it. Yeah. And I can tell, um, it's funny when you mentioned the gymnast thing, because I, I remember listening to a podcast or watching a presentation where you were talking about, um, I want to say it was labral tears in the hip. Uh, or pelvic dysfunction around a particular problem that some athletes have, but it's misdiagnosed. And I want to say it had something to do with either rectus abdominis or hip labrum, something along those lines, which isn't foot related per se, but yet that was an area you were sharing. And then when I looked at your Instagram profile, and I also know from following these other aspects, you've got this technology that you share in your company and, and I have it, um, Naboso, mm-hmm. right. And then also the, um, the global educator, barefoot science educator. So just, I want to go into those in a little more detail, but just briefly talk about the Naboso technology and you being the founder of that. What is that? 
for the listener. Yeah. So I, I wear many hats. <laughs> so what you're kind of demonstrating, um, but Noboso is a company and a product line that I first developed back in 2015, 16. I was doing the, the research and the R&D around it and then uh, launched our first product January, 2017. And it was a textured yoga mat we'll call it. Oh, so a, a yoga mat size shape that had little tiny pyramids across the entire surface. And the purpose of the mat and really all of our products today is to stimulate the nerves in the bottom of the feet and the palm of the hand, because they are very unique and they're sensitive to very specific stimulation. Specifically one is called texture or two point discrimination. So having these tiny little pyramids your nervous system and your brain senses that subtlety between the two points. And that's, that's very specific to the hands and the feet and to the brain. When you bring in that stimulation, it helps people feel their feet, feel their foundation, their weight distribution. Um, it helps to improve balance, posture, gait, movement, performance, all of these amazing things. Um, so that's really my the extension of my career and how I look at feet from a sensory perspective. And that's what I think is really important for the listeners is that our feet are powerful mechanically, right? Pronation, supination, high arches, dorsiflexion, all of that. But there's this really powerful sensory side and that's, that's what gets me going. That's what I love to talk about. And that's really why I then developed Naboso is a sensory product line to stimulate the hands and the feet. Okay. So let me just ask you a quick question. When you created that mat, you called it a yoga mat. So was the intention that would be for yoga practice and or other things, or what was the marketing or focus of that? Yeah. So initially that first product of this Naboso mat is that we did market it to the yoga community, the Pilates community, and really fitness in general. Um, and then we started to see that there's many more applications to a surface. So really it was a textured surface, not just a mat. Um, and that eventually led to how we had to develop several different types of mats. Okay. What now evolutionarily is our mind body mat. So if someone were to go to naboso.com and look at our mats, they would see a mind body mat. That would be quote unquote, the yoga mat. But again, it can be used for Pilates, for stretching, for myofascial work. And what differentiates it from our training mat is that it's a little bit softer, meaning not as abrasive of a texture because some of the yoga poses like a child pose, you're on the tops of your feet, if you're on your elbows, your stomach, right? So you're, you're in different skin interaction with the mat than say someone who's doing kettlebell swings standing on it, right? So we needed a mat that would be stimulating, but not irritating to the skin. And that's what our mind body mat does. Got it. Wow. So it's really, you really could use it as you practice yoga. Yeah, we have many yogis and yoga practitioners, instructors that love the mat because it forces them to be present in their weight distribution, um, their their body placement, and to kind of validate this space. If 
there needs to be validation is that Lululemon created a mat called the form. I believe they call it the, I don't think it's I form, but the form and there's ridges in the mat. And the way that they market this mat is they say, don't look at where you're placing your feet in your hands, but feel where you're placing it. So they say, you know, letting the senses guide you, which I love. We're doing the same thing. We actually did it before Lululemon. Um, and we're doing it in a different way through pyramids. And the, the irregularity of this Lululemon mat that I'm referencing is it's great. You can sense it. You can feel it. But the specificity of the pyramids and the two points on the Naboso mat is activating really specific nerves in the hands and the feet. Got it. Got it. Yeah, that's um, I, I did not know about that product. And it's just kind of ironic because that's obviously the main focus here on the podcast here. So that's fantastic. So there's so many things that you're saying that I want to remember to come back to before I dive in a little bit there. I'd love you to speak a little bit about your, your founding of this other barefoot science education, um, organization, training organization. Tell us about that. Yeah. So I founded EBFA global. So that's the company is EBFA global. And we have certifications for health, wellness, and fitness professionals, which includes yoga instructors. And we have several certifications through the the school or the academy. The main one is called Barefoot Training Specialist. And this is a two-level, two-day per level training. So 12 to 14 hours um, for each level. And it goes into the anatomy of the feet, the muscles, the joints, the fascial connections, how to do a foot assessment, how to build foot specific programming, and then how the feet functionally influence higher up in the body. So the knees, hips, lower back through kinematics or kinetics. And it really brings focused education to our foundation, which people typically don't find in other certifications or this deep of a dive. This is all in with feet, but it's teaching feet always from an integrated perspective, which means that the foot is not in isolation, that they're not talked about how they connect to the core, the hips, everything that we teach. And that I teach is that foot strength comes from how it connects to the deep core, the pelvic floor, the diaphragm, the hips, the glutes, and that's how they should be trained. That's mm -hmm. how they should be assessed. Um, and that's really just functionally how they work. Um, so that's really an important part of the programming as well. Yeah, I love that because as an anatomy teacher for yoga teachers, their experience oftentimes is thinking of things in parts as parts. And yet as a yoga teacher, that's what you're doing. You're teaching the whole. So it's like, can you learn the parts and then back out and cue your students from the perspective of the whole and also maybe give a little detail. So I love that perspective that you just shared. So um, let me go back to something you mentioned about feel your feet and just this idea, you know, where you're talking about the mat and the pyramids. And when I think about, again, yoga cueing, there is a lot of verbiage that we use as teachers around feel your feet, feel your foundation. And for most teachers, myself included, even though I know anatomy well, I often share that 
as just sort of a somatic reference without maybe really thinking about the literal anatomy that's happening there, whether it's bones or connective tissue structures, or as you're talking about the relationship to the nervous system when you do certain things. Mm -hmm. So could you share a little bit about when we just kind of maybe even sometimes flippantly, not intentionally say, feel your feet, like, let's really talk about and help the yoga teachers listening, appreciate what does that mean? Because I think obviously your life is about helping people feel their feet. <laughs> so just anywhere you want to go with that, I would love. Yeah. So I would say if I was thinking about this cue, feel your feet in a yoga practice, my mind goes to balanced weight distribution. Okay. So wanting to feel and find the foot tripod that there is symmetrical or even body weight distribution under the first, first met head, fifth met head, and then heel. So that's your tripod, right? But then extending it into the digits that really a lot of our balance and weight distribution and power comes from the digits. So the toes connecting into the ground. Um, I typically like to have a more engaged, but relaxed connection to the ground. So I don't want someone to be pushing their toes down, you know, maximum strength as hard as they can. I call it more saying hello. So I want you to say hello to the foot. You can use whatever words you want in that place where you're, you're connecting and engaging, but the body stays calm and relaxed. So you're not showing that tension on your face or elsewhere in the body, right? So you're connected through the feet, you're on the tripod, the digits are filling the ground, and then you could give an actual sensory cue if you want, right? Feel the texture of the Naboso mat. Let's say you're on a mind-body mat. Um, feel the coolness of the mat or the floor underneath your foot. So you're actually giving a, a tactile sensory cue with that foot placement, right? And then also realizing that the foot's role during dynamic movement, which includes yoga flows and the way that we move through the foot in a yoga flow or pose is designed to be an energy conduit. Don't want to make it too confusing, but an energy transfer system, which means there's always a fluidity in the foot and a rhythmic nature in the way that we move through the foot. So there's a rolling or a rocking or a rhythm or a fluid or a grace. And those are characteristics that I try to associate with foot movements mm -hmm. and foot awareness. Mm -hmm. Most people think of the foot like a big block of bones that do not articulate in their own, that mm -hmm. it is solid structure because of footwear and footwear being really restrictive orthotics are very restrictive. So then people think of it just as this mass that is moving as one unit. Mm -hmm. um, so how can we try to find that articulation in our feet and our foundation? Got it. Okay. So for students, you know, we as teachers sometimes hear a variety of concerns that students have. I have fallen arches or I have high arches or I have plantar fasciitis or I had an injury, uh, I broke my ankle or something along those lines. How does, 
how can we, you know, of course, we're not treating anybody, we're not treating pain, anything along those lines. However, in the context of teaching yoga within our sphere of, of professional discipline, what kinds of suggestions can we make to students that have, I know that's a plethora of things I just laid out there, but just in general, I mean, I think the, the arch situation comes up a lot for people where they feel like they have flat feet. Um, so anything that comes to mind that maybe even you commonly see in your treating of people. Yeah. So when it comes to foot type and arches, a lot of people have no idea what their foot type is. They have this lack of awareness is not just in the, are you on your tripod or not? Right. Are you engaging your foot or not? But it's also, are you dumping into the inside of the foot, which would be quote unquote over pronation or quote unquote flat feet. Um, And can we, through our cueing, teach people to feel if the arch is high or low or dumping, right? And then can we actually teach them and have them experience that the arch control actually comes all the way from the hip? So I will typically teach people that uh, finding neutral or setting your base is a external rotation moment all the way into the hips or the glutes. And I will typically introduce that in my trainings by having people stand up. And if the listeners want to do this as we're doing it, but they can stand up and roll to the inside of the feet and then to the outside of the feet. So they're just rolling through the foot pronation. And then when we roll to the outside of the foot, that would be supination. And then as we do that, the listener or the student should feel or see that the knees are knocking inward and the knees knock out, right? So there's a rotation Mm -hmm. that is driven from these movements in the foot and they go all the way up into the hip. So if you're doing that and your hands are on your hips or your butt, right? You should feel that there's movement. You can feel the femur rolling as well. And then the pelvis moves as well. That joint coupling or that interconnected rotation from the feet is how you correct or you lift your arches. So I would want someone to rotate all the way into their hip joints externally to lift their arch. And I wouldn't want it to be too aggressive that now they're all the way on the outside of the foot, but just this subtle rotation I try to avoid cueing, squeeze your butt as the the cue, because I try to not find aggressive contractions in muscles, but can we rotate, create tone in the glutes and in the core? Because that's what supports your glutes is your core, right? And then can you just say hello to your digits or to your toes? And then that would be setting your base or finding neutral. So for the, for the listeners, can you somehow provide that cueing to your students when they're in certain poses so that they can feel that everything builds off of a strong foot foundation and that it really does connect into the core and the hips? Yeah. Okay. So I think that's a great and beautiful example of the interconnectedness, how you described it. Um, and I think it highlights where someone might have a challenge at the feet as a yoga teacher, it's helpful for us, helpful for us to think up the kinetic chain as to different 
poses we might recommend that might emphasize a particular movement, like in this case, external rotation, if they're not doing that enough. Mm-hmm. What I'm wondering is, you know, there's different philosophies and approaches to cueing people in, in yoga poses. And let's look at standing poses uh, for now, even though some poses on the back, uh, you are in with your feet on the floor, like a bridge pose, for instance, but let's just take standing poses. Would would you um, suggest that teachers cue from the ground up as a way to, you know, sort of bring more awareness from the feet up the chain or cue from, I don't know if it matters, but I'm just wondering like what your thought is. Like if you were to teach a yoga class or when you teach fitness classes, do you cue people from the ground up, even though maybe some of the issues might be up the chain? Yes. So I still would. Um, a way that I would do it. And again, I'm not telling anyone how to cue. So you yeah. can and this is not for, for that kind of rigidity, but I'm just curious yeah. kind of in your approach. Yeah. So if I was, let's say I was about to go into like bow pose or tree pose, something like that. Right. So I need to, there's a focused moment on one leg right? So I'm kind of getting myself set up. I'm not just shifting my weight to my right leg and then, you know, lifting one leg and then going into tree or boat, right? So I'm, I'm looking at my foot, finding my tripod, lifting my digits, spreading them out, kind of rotate externally into my hip to set my base, right? Now I'm, and then I'm lifting into my core. Now I'm grabbing my other leg so that I can go into bull pose. Right. So there's that focused, this is how we set our foundation. And then we go into it. And I feel I've done a lot of, a lot of yoga. Um, I would actually love to be a yoga instructor, but but I, I absolutely love yoga and I've done almost every style. Um, uh, so just kind of putting that out as like a disclaimer on it, that the intentional setting of a foundation before a standing unilateral pose, I think is really powerful. Um, And I'm sure the instructors that are listening know that you have some of your students that are just like, stand on your right leg, go like they, they they don't have this further intent of the body placement. Um, So as much as that can be integrated into the cueing of like really set that base of this single leg you're about to stand on. And then let's get into the rest of the positioning, right? Um, That would at least help people realize there's a foot tripod, that there is this rotation, that we have to lift the core before we do it. So it's almost like finding your fascia, Mm. right? Like get into your fascia, then let's get into the pose. That's kind of how I would dance through that one. Got it. So you mentioned the tripod a couple of times, and I know some teachers um, have a background, maybe from the teacher that they trained with or something they read that the four corners of the feet is another paradigm to use for creating foundation. Is that something that's kind of a equal alternative or what are your thoughts on that? Sure. Um, If you want to think of it as four quadrants, even uh, weight distribution from medial lateral anterior posterior, right? That's, that's just what we're trying to do. And if you have a slightly different word, totally fine. 
Um, yeah. Some people will now call it a quadrupod, which means you're connecting the big toe into the ground. Okay, call yeah. it that if you want, right? Yeah. Um, that's totally fine. I understand the functional reason behind that. And if that sits well with you, then use it. But what we're trying to create is a balanced weight distribution between medial, lateral, anterior, and posterior. Got it. Okay. And then bilateral, yeah. right? So yeah. then both feet, you can't be on one foot, but not the other in a bilateral stance. Right. So it's sort of like something needs to happen to check the box of awareness at the feet more than just saying stand on one leg, like you described before. Right. Um, uh, oh God, I just had a thought and it just left my mind. We were talking about the, oh gosh, it totally just left my mind. So, um, all right. So let's go into a little, I mean, I, I know there's probably hours and hours and hours, but is there something like if I'm a yoga teacher and I'm really in that zone of feeling like the foot is just a block at the bottom of my body, you know, and when I'm working with my students, I don't really have a good understanding of just some of the basics. Are there some basic, um, structures we can understand better if you just kind of run through a little bit of what is, what is there? Yeah. So, um, we'll start from proximal or the top and go go down, um, is obviously our ankle. The ankle is important for a lot of the yoga poses where you may see someone going into like chair poses is, is obviously one, um, some of the warrior poses, if they don't have sufficient ankle range of motion, meaning dorsiflexion, then they will typically compensate or dump to the inside. Um, and that's just really a compensation of the body taking the path of least resistance. <laughs> it's just going to, it's just going to pronate if someone has insufficient ankle mobility. Um, so that's a big one that you can see. Um, that's where, if, uh, you have someone on chair, put their heels on like a yoga blanket. That would be a way that you are working around their lack of ankle dorsiflexion and mobility to keep them more neutral so that they don't unlock and dump the foot into the inside, right? That's the so, way that- So let me, just, let me just poke in here just with an idea, because I love what you said about that path of least resistance, which, you know, my exercise training mind kicks in, which, because that concept isn't always really taught in the context of teaching yoga teachers anatomy, you know, because it sort of does live a little bit more conceptually in the exercise science world. But yet when we're teaching, we'll see people in chair, especially if we maybe intentionally ask them to have their feet at hip width instead of together, we'll see the knees knock in and not maybe realize that that's something that's a workaround or um, where you're talking about lacking dorsiflexion from a range of motion perspective at the ankle. How, just, just repeat or remind me again, how would that look? Would that be knees knocking in or what would it look like if someone lacked dorsiflexion and you're having them come into chair and maybe you're challenging them, go lower, go lower. Is there something we would see if they don't have that and they're not elevated? Yes. You would see them turn their feet out. Okay. They would have a very hard time keeping the feet parallel in that position. Got it you're going to see them roll to the inside of the foot. Okay. okay. You may see them do chair and actually lift their heels off of the floor. Yeah. 
those are really tight people. Um, or you'll see them, you wouldn't see the knees knocking in without the foot rolling in because the foot rolling in is what causes the knee to knock in, right? Um, but your eye might see the knees before the feet because of background and stuff like that. So those would be the big ones. Um, oh, another big one is people that do chair and they have to drop their chest. So they're really dropping their chest. And what, what is unique with chair pose and yoga is with the arms. So as soon as you bring your arms overhead, you're now, you just tighten the lats. So if someone has tight lats, and tight ankles, which is very common, right. you're going to see someone very dramatically drop their chest down and, or they're just not going to be able to get low at all. And they're going to start turning the feet out. Um, so chair pose is probably the best one to see ankle mobility issues and to yeah. learn about training the eye to see those mobility issues. Got it. Okay. So I took you a little off track because of my interrupting. Um, so Ankle is one part of the anatomy as we go forward, or I guess down and forward, what comes next? Yes. So under the ankle would be the subtalar joint. And that is the joint that I was referencing when I said roll to the outside of the foot, the inside of the foot, right? So I was describing the way the subtalar joint moves the foot. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it is a joint that creates the rotations into the leg. So rotations of the leg are actually created by the subtalar joint. Okay. Now the subtalar joint, that's really going back into overpronation or flat feet. Um, and that, that rolling in or unlocking of the subtalar joint destabilizes the foot. So that's, that's again, going to the tripod, finding neutral rotate into the hips. Plus if someone might have had an ankle sprain or strain, they might have some weakness maybe that causes them to lean in to overpronate. Is that? Uh, well, typically, when, yeah, when typically when someone sprains an ankle, the way that they will then fall into instability will be outside, okay. which is inversion or yep. supination. So they'll go into the side of the foot. Right. But that's, that's good to see that as well. Right. That, you know, are they rolling to the outside? Maybe it's ankle sprain. Maybe it's something else. Are they rolling to the inside, which is really unstable. Um, and that's a subtalar joint. I would say the next most important one would be the big toe. And I can okay. talk about the middle of the foot, but from foot introduction, I like to do ankle subtalar joint and then the great toe or the first MPJ. Um, So the first MPJ, this is where you'll see them in, you know, high lunge. Obviously the, the plank is are going through chaturangas or in the push-up position. Um, Any restriction in the first MPJ or the big toe is going to create, typically people will turn their feet out or the roll on the side of the foot which then unlocks the foot and then everything up the chain can be destabilized. Um, Now bunions have to be right. If someone's doing yoga and they have bunions, um, it is a deviation of their first MPJ. So they're actually 
subluxed off of the joint right. in a sense. So their ability to move naturally through the lever of the foot is going to be compromised because of the bunion. So what I recommend to my patients is to use toe spacers when people do yoga, as an example, and then wear yeah, them while they're while you're doing yoga to use the toe spacers. And then it is keeping your lever in alignment so that you can actually roll through the foot, not turn and compensate in different ways. Got it. You know, it's interesting that you talk about this because we don't often think of, I mean, as yoga teachers, we often think of the big joints of the body, not a joint like the big toe joint, but yet given everything you described from the ground up can create issues. So that is that big toe joint, I imagine has up the chain effects. How though, if someone doesn't have bunions, which isn't limited, limiting their range of motion, how is someone going to assess um, if they have limited mobility and how might they address it? Mm, in the big the, toe. Yeah. So typically you can see through movement patterns. Okay. Um, I, I actually move the joint. I, I teach professionals how to assess the joint and move it. Yeah. Um, but if you're not actually touching the foot, you can do it through just observing movement. Right. Okay. And if they're not rolling through the big toe joint, you can typically tell um, in certain yoga poses, we need 65, 75, probably even 90 degrees dorsiflexion in the big toe. Like a, a push-up position requires a lot of range of motion of the big toe. And it's also range of motion that we don't want to be compressed, right? So think about someone who's, holding a push-up position and they're, they're maximally flexing their big toes, right. Or they're all their digits, but their big toe specifically, and they're dead in their body. They're not connected to the fascia. So there's not a lift, right. There's not a lightness to their movement in their body. Yep. They're, they're going to jam the big toe joint. And then that can lead to a lot of issues. One thing that I do see a lot in people that take yoga that do not have sufficient range of motion and strength and awareness is they're doing chaturanga. It's very competitive. I lived in New York city for 20 years. Yeah. Yoga is a competition. <laughs> so they're doing the jump back and they're jumping back and they go boom and they slam their body weight into the, into the digits and into the foot because they don't realize that you're floating back right? And you're landing very softly on the first MPJ in the foot that they jump and they just really compress. Um, so that's where, you know, you'll see that they can't hold good alignment or they are very hard in their movements, right? It's the person who's doing the jump back and they're loud, <laughs> right? So that's what the instructor could also be looking for. Right. Right. Well, that speaks to when you mentioned integrated before, it's like, if there's no integration, there's a lot of noise in that yeah. particular movement. Or even if you're running and you hear somebody running behind you for running for exercise and uh, you're like, Oh my, like a lot of times I live in Boston, I'll run around the river, uh, the Charles river, and I'll hear a runner behind me because there's no integration in the movement. So it's very much pound, 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 pound. Yep. And you're like, Oh boy. Okay. Um, all right. So let me, um, 
let me ask you, oh God, I'm having like brain, brain issues, right? today for some reason. Let me go back to the other thing I was going to ask you, which I, which I remembered when you were speaking before, if we're working some, sometimes we have opportunities to work with students one-on-one. Is there something we could be doing as teachers? And this probably won't work as well if we're working with someone virtually uh, in an online private, but if we have an opportunity to work with someone privately in person, is there something we could integrate in the first session where we're doing a visual observation of the person standing? Should we, again, without going outside our professional scope of practice, is there something that we could be looking for that might, you know, raise some, I don't want to say red flags, but something that just files in our memory, our mind as be aware of this? Yeah. So I go into these in the BTS or the barefoot training specialist level one. So just in case if it piques some curiosity, that's in my EBFA education is I teach how to do a standing foot assessment and where that's good for the yoga practitioner is that you don't ever have to touch the feet. Obviously touching and manipulating the feet is beyond the scope of, of a yoga cert, but you can get a lot of information by just seeing these three positions. So having someone stand with their feet shoulder width apart and they're relaxed, head is straight uh, ahead, right? And you're just looking at this passive foot position. Okay. Do you see uh, eversion, inversion? Is it neutral? You're looking at the back of the foot, right? And go eventually into a little bit in the arch, but you're just looking at the subtalar joint in the back to see what's going on. Then I will look at people in a single leg stance. Now, a single leg stance is an active position because as soon as we shift from two legs to one leg, your glutes should be engaging. That's the whole purpose of the glutes is so that we can stabilize on one leg. It engages the lateral line. So we want to then see the foot should actually look more stable on a single leg stance than on a double leg stance. Okay. Cause again, double leg is passive, single leg is active. So if I had someone with a slight pronation, two legs, and they shift onto one leg and their glutes are strong, they should lift their arch and rotate the leg externally. And then that foot should be beautifully neutral. That is- you see the response of those medial gluteal muscles yep. are lateral- way down to the foot. Yep. As, yeah. Otherwise there's yes. some weakness there. Yeah. So you could think of the glutes as inverters or supinators of the foot. They actually lift the arch. Now, obviously it's through connected muscles, but they're lifting the arch. Okay. And then the third position that I have people go into is, um, a single heel raise. So just lifting one heel. That's a very functional position of the foot, being able to do it on one leg versus two legs is really important. Um, A lot of people, if you do a bilateral heel raise, so many people will use one leg to get them up versus the other. So it's, we don't even realize it. So a single heel raise really isolates out the foot and the strength of the foot and specifically a muscle called the posterior tibialis. Mm -hmm. And that muscle runs from the inside of your foot or your arch behind the heel and then into the lower leg, really important muscle. Um, 
And then what you should see is that they can lift straight across the MPJs. So they're not turning the foot or collapsing in any way that there is a lever. And then that the heel is going to lock and become a very stable. It's a lever. It's called a rigid lever, right? So it's a really stable pivot point for power. So when I assess the feet and I do a majority of my patients, I actually see virtually now and I can treat almost everything virtually because of the skill of assessing and then just listening to the patient. (laughs) So you just need to listen and then observe. And then I can uh, typically get the information that I need by seeing them passive on two legs, active on one leg, do a single heel raise. That's where I would leave it right now. And then ultimately you could watch someone walk, right? Watch someone walk into the classroom watch, you know, how do they get off of the floor, watch kind of just a baseline passive position of people and movement patterns outside of the yoga practice. And you will get a lot of information. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And as you were talking, um, I was thinking about variations that we could offer students of standard, somewhat standard fundamental poses by just integrating some of these things. Like let's go back to chair pose. If you did chair pose and had people lift their heels, or if you did chair pose and had them sort of extend one leg forward. So now it's chair sort of with a balance. Mm -hmm. Would that be ways to integrate some of these things you're talking about into just a typical practice to kind of keep it a little interesting and maybe challenge some of these aspects? 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. I love that. Because I'm always, always like to try to look for interesting ways to, it's kind of like when you add vegetables to something, so kids will eat it, you know, you're like, they like the thing, but you put the vegetables in, it's like, oh, okay. And like, did you know you're getting your vegetables with whatever that thing is? I don't have kids, but I work with kids. So I know that's a technique. Um, Okay. So you've mentioned fascia a number of times. I am a huge fan of fascia, not only as a human, but as a teacher. And I also teach myofascial release and I'm just in love with everything that's out now, the microscope is finally on the fascia, you know, after all the years of just cutting through it. So, um, I want to just, I know there is a big fascial challenge that some people have related to the feet, which is plantar fasciitis. Could you maybe just speak a little bit about what that is? Cause we do hear that from our students sometimes, and then just in general, where you're referring to fascia as a general component of dynamic movement how that kind of, what does that mean for you in your work, given you're focused on the ground, but yet, you know, there's this literal connection, connective tissue connection from the ground all the way up. So maybe first on plantar fascia, a little snippet, and then the other piece. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to say some characteristic about fascia and then I'm going to get into plantar fasciitis and then I'll go global again. Um, so when I think about fascia, whether it's the plantar fascia, the Achilles tendon, or your myofascial spider web, that's connecting the body, it's, it's all connective tissue, right? We'll call it fascia for the sake of, of this conversation is that we want to have several characteristics to that fascia or several skills that we can harness from our our connective tissue. Uh, The first one is tension, and that's how we create stability, 
right? So tension, tone, the lift of the pelvic floor is tension, right? For those that study fascia, they've heard of tensegrity, I'm sure, right? So tension is a fascial word that people are familiar with, okay? And when I create tension, it's really tone, and that's posturally how we resist gravity, is through this baseline tension within our fascial web. Okay. Now, the other part of it is that you also have to have elasticity. So we have to have a balance between having tone and tension to resist gravity, but then be a rubber band to dynamically transfer energy. And that transfer of energy when we move and when we walk is through forces, uh, impact gravity as a force into our tissue, and then we release it as elastic energy. Same thing in the plantar fascia, that your plantar fascia is just a very specialized band of connective tissue. It's a little bit thicker and it runs from your heel into your digits and it actually fans out into five slips. So it inserts into the base of each toe and we use it every time we take a step. And the way that we load it is actually in two ways. First way that we load it is what's called arch compression. So when we walk, run or jump, do something dynamic, the arch drops a little bit. And when the arch drops, you pull on the plantar fascia because you're loading it, right? Right. You're potentiating it. And then when you roll forward into the lever that we spoke about, so the ball of the foot, that's your lever, right? You are, you're getting this recoil, but then you're putting tension in it again. And that's called the windless mechanism. And when you flex your toes, you actually tighten your plantar fascia at the heel and you can actually feel it in your foot. Um, Oftentimes I'll have people. And if the listeners want to do this, as I'm saying it is that if your foot is relaxed and you touch your arch, so I'm touching my arch but my foot is relaxed and I know my plantar fascia is in there somewhere. Can't feel it, but it's there. And then I keep the hand in the bottom of the foot in the arch. And then I take my toes and I dorsiflex them or I bend them back. Right. As soon as I do that, boom, right. Your fascia just tightened. That is the windless mechanism. And the purpose of it is it's how you stabilize the foot to lock it, to release energy. So those, those two steps, right? There's this arch compression elasticity and then a tightening through the windless mechanism. Now, if you don't have sufficient elasticity in your fascia, specifically your plantar fascia, you will start to micro tear where it originates. So it's typically at the origin. It's just tighter there. Mm-hmm. So you start to kind of pull and pull and pull and you micro tear and then you get this inflammatory response and then there's repair and then there's stickiness and scar tissue and blah, 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 right? And then stickiness in tissue means it restricts the elasticity even more. So now you're going through the movement and then you injure it again and you get in this little hamster wheel of injury try to repair, re-injury, stasis, chronicity, degeneration, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So that's really what plantar fasciitis is. Mm -hmm. Depending on how long you have the symptoms, it may switch to be chronic 
and then it's actually degenerative in nature. And then that would be plantar fasciosis, oh. if anyone has heard of that. And plantar fasciosis just means it's now chronic. Um, now, regardless of itis osis, is we understand that we have sufficient, insufficient elasticity within our connective tissue. And I find that a lot of that starts with foot weakness. Overpronated feet are very susceptible to it. Um, ligament lax feet are mm-hmm. sensitive to it. People who compensate, people who have longer legs, pelvic floor issues, women who are pregnant or just out of pregnancy, you can see it because the core shuts down, obviously, when you're pregnant. So they're just pounding the pavement and stressing it more than the foot can tolerate. Mm-hmm. People who stand long hours on their feet. So there's a lot of very uh, predictable patterns that stress the fascia. Um, so that's kind of the plantar fasciitis and the characteristics of fascia. A um, couple other interesting ways that I look at fascia is that it's our postural tissue. I mentioned that slightly. And part of how we maintain posture is that we resist gravity. So our fascia is actually anti-gravity. So when you create tone or you're connected to your fascia, you're actually lifted and you're lighter on your feet. So you are floating in a sense, if you are finding your fascia, your postural fascia. Another thing is that postural muscles or postural tissue has to be continuously assessing the environment, right? Like where's my center of mass? Where am I? Am I breathing? What surface am I on? So they are very nerve rich, sensory nerve rich, proprioceptive rich, right? So our fascial tissue has over 100 million sensory nerves. So I look at it as an extension of our brain. And I consider fascial training, which yoga is a form of fascial training, um, brain training. So really everything is brain training, but I'm very much into brain nervous system neurological, which means you have to be into fascia (laughs) if you're into those things. Uh, And then of course the feet and the hands kind of tie into that as well. Yeah. And I love how you talked about connecting to your fascia in that description you just gave, because I think you know, for teachers out there who don't have yet a good understanding of fascia, they might feel that as muscular engagement, which is so often in the verbiage of teaching, engage the muscle, contract the muscle. Teachers are throwing out those terms, which isn't necessarily bad or wrong, but I think adding in some of the languaging, I mean, even if you're not teaching a myofascial release workshop, you still can speak the language of fascia, right? In the context of teaching class to help people have an appreciation for that buoyant quality that comes from that fascial network. Yeah, hundred percent. And I like that you had said this element of muscles and really when people move muscularly, they are working harder than they need to because the muscle is purely the conduit of energy between the movement and fascia. So it's, it's, the, the necessary piece, but it's what's creating the tension. It's what's allowing the energy to enter the fascia. Um, so they are connected myofascial movement, but purely muscular movement is very exhausting to the body. It puts a lot of extra stress on myotendon junctions. So anyone who's getting any itis 
of any sort, Achilles tendonitis, hamstring tendonitis, bicep tendonitis, whatever it is, is that they're working harder than they should be. And I think that that's quite evident in new people in yoga or not always men, but you know, (laughs) men men is a little bit, um, lower flexibility level. They're going to be very muscular in a yoga practice because they're just trying to survive and get through it. Right. (laughs) So (laughs) my husband is the worst at at doing yoga and he is just like drenched. And I'm like, how is your caloric expenditure so high in (laughs) the yoga class? Yeah. But like you say, it's a very different mindset. If you're used to kind of resistance training, weight training, you're going in and you're trying to muscle through it. And without even getting into the meditative kind of eight limbs of yoga aspect of energy distribution, if you just stay with the infrastructure of the body, as you say, there's moving from your fascia, moving from your muscle, obviously everything's connected. However, as you describe it, it's a different feeling. It's the same thing that I was saying before about the person running for exercise and it's pound, pound, pound versus the person that's running in an integrated way is, is leveraging that fascial buoyant. Spider-Man suit. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So this, this leads me to a little bit of a, not strange question, but it's definitely related, but it's just something I always think about. And I was thinking the other day, it sort of relates to what we're talking about, especially when we talk about working from muscle. I was watching um, the new uh, series uh, that Tom Brady has out uh, called Man in the Arena. And it's um, an excellent series about just the psychology and the training and all of what goes into being a professional football player. And for whatever reason, I never really noticed this, but there was this one shot of, and this could be any football player, not just him, but um, there was a shot of him coming out of, you know, they come out in the beginning and all the team is behind the quarterback. And I looked at, I looked at from the knees down, it is it doesn't even look like a human leg and foot. It is just like Frankenstein. It's just all of this sock and then all of this, what looked like white tape and then all of this shoe. And I don't know why I never noticed it. And I, I thought to myself, how is he even mobile on the field with all of that? What looks so heavy Now I know, you know, obviously his training process is very specific and people he works with and all of that. And he has his own pliability. So I know he is in this language that we are speaking, but yet when I look at that, so just in general, when you think about athletes, especially for listeners out there who are teachers that work with teenagers that are in sports or whatever, is there anything in what I'm saying that triggers different thoughts or comments or anything about this kind of paradigm that we want people to be mobile and the foot is the base of the connection to everything, but yet we're putting all this stuff around their feet. Yeah, that is. So a lot of that, that you're describing are these mechanical restrictors to external forces. Okay. And they are a quote unquote necessary evil in a sense. Okay. So I, and I work a lot with athletes, but then I'm also approached by many people who think that they're going to change the soccer cleat, the football cleat, the hockey skate, the, and they say, we need to get those more minimal. We need to get them flexible. Right. And it's, 
it's not going to happen, right? It is, it serves a functional purpose purely for the demands of that sport Mm -hmm. and sports like many arts are very unnatural to the body very stressful to the body. And my, my background outside of gymnastics is aerials. So aerials and a lot of the stuff that I will do when I'm on silks or straps is just not good for the body (laughs) anyway. An orthopedic surgeon would say, do not do that to your shoulders, but people do it anyway, because it is that defiance of what we think the body can do and achieve. That is the part of what we do, right? What we love to do that's art, but that's also sports. Um, So I find the perspective that I take on that is that that is, there's a functional purpose why a soccer cleat is so tight. They want it so they can feel the ball, right? They don't want room and space. They need tight, tight, tight cleat in to connect with the, with the ball. So what I say then to the yoga instructors and the practitioners who work with these athletes, or maybe your children and, you know, people you love are doing those sports is what can we do when we are outside of those shoes in that environment to reset, reverse, reverse, find balance back into our fascia, muscles, sensory tissue, our movement. And what we do outside of the field court ice, right. Is actually the most important time. And that environment is what we should be optimizing and controlling. Yeah. I love that. So, um, So in terms of things like barefoot running and minimalist running shoes, like those kinds of things don't provide the support that people need for running or they provide an opportunity for strengthening. Cause I know that's sort of a trend. I don't know if you would even call it a trend. It seems to be out there for a while. So it's probably past the trend point. (laughs) It's probably just kind of a thing that some people decide to do. Um, Would you say that it's, it's, um, potentially challenging for the anatomy of the body to run in bare feet, or it's something that you can acclimate to. Yeah. So I'm actually an advocate of minimal barefoot if you want, but minimal shoe running. Um, and the reason is that it is more natural to the fascial system. Okay. Now, having said that certain foot types, certain injury histories, certain people just don't have either the anatomy, strength, function, et cetera, to be fully minimal for a certain distance that they're running. And if that's the case, they can either take the time to build the strength and slowly progress into the stress of a certain distance in minimal shoes, or they run in the environment that works for them. And can we combine that with a sensory rich environment, foot strengthening, be barefoot in your home, right? So I'm all about balance. I'm very not, everything's black and white and it's either this or this, that there's what I believe in and what I try to achieve for people I teach and for my patients. Mm -hmm. And then there's the reality. So how much of what I recommend to these people or share with your, with your audience can they take and apply to their reality. And as much as they can, I'm happy. Yeah. And I think that's a great philosophy for anything, whether it's nutrition or mindfulness or exercise. Um, Okay. So I have one last question as we wrap up here. And 
I, you know, it came to my mind this morning as I was doing this, my new thing um, I recently received as a gift, um, the Theragun. So I have this whole basket of myofascial tools, the MFR balls of different sizes and all of that. And I'm sort of not using them now because I'm really having fun with the percussive technology. Um, so I was thinking this morning as I was doing that on my whole body, but definitely my feet, that I would love to ask you for one last question. What, um, what we can do, not just as yoga teachers, but as humans for self-care, self-care is such a buzzword, but what's some, what are some self-care things we can do for our feet? <laughs> yes. So self-care tips. <laughs> yes. So you can definitely use Theragun or any other percussive device. You could absolutely do that. It feels great. I have one as well. <laughs> um, but what I would say is to do at least five minutes of a foot release at least twice a day. So in the morning and the evening. And why I say in the morning is that when we sleep, our tissue dehydrates and our connective tissue becomes sticky. So I like to do a five minute foot release in the morning. I have them in my bathroom. I have the neural ball, which is two domes when you split it. And then, um, so I'm brushing my teeth, releasing my feet five minutes, right? Great. So I'm warming up my So you're using a tool for that or you're just Okay. Now I'm using a tool. So um, at Naboso, we have a ball that if you push on it, it'll split into two pieces okay. and then you can put it on the floor and then you release. Um, now, some patients that I have will use a Theragun and they'll just wake up, sit up in bed and then release the feet for a couple of minutes before they get out of the bed. And then it helps, especially those that have plantar fasciitis that might help to actually do something physically in your bed and then stand up and get out. Okay. Um, so that's five minutes. In addition to that, I like to do, um, toe spacers. I'm obsessed with them. Um, I'd mentioned that for people with bunions, but toe spacers are really good because they stretch out all the muscles in the front of the foot, the toes. If we wear shoes or tight shoes or cleats or heels or anything, it just kind of opens up the foot. It also stretches your plantar fascia. So it's really good. Um, I know that yoga is barefoot, but I like to get at least 30 minutes of sensory stimulation to the feet every day. So barefoot, something walk around your home barefoot, if that is, that's what it needs. Um, and then, uh, trying to do a little bit of just foot activation. So that could just be connecting your toes, spreading them, squeezing them. So just kind of wake them up in a sense, those are my recommendations for people for healthy feet. And it's done every day. Got it. If would yoga practice check the box for foot activation, if you're doing a yoga practice versus an isolated set of foot activation exercises? Yep. Yep. Okay. So you that's can, can definitely do that. And then um, if anyone finds that any of their students do have plantar fasciitis or something, and they're kind of concerned going through the yoga practice and some of the poses, then they could release their feet before they come into the studio, right? Or something like that is to say like, hey, part of part of how we need to set our foundation is let's release the fascia and the muscles in the bottom of the feet. And then they go into the practice. Okay. All right. So for, for the final, final, um, can you let people know if they're interested in this training, because there might be some yoga teachers out there that would love to take a, a, a look at the foot exclusively. And there aren't a lot of yoga programs in the yoga Alliance kind of yoga industry that's in that niche. 
um, with someone with your expertise. So tell us that. Tell us how to connect with you on Instagram and tell us about the products we can access and how to access them, especially the yoga mat. Yep. So the education that is ebfaglobal.com. So eb, B is in boy, faglobal.com. Um, there is a EBFA Instagram as well, EBFA underscore barefoot education. And then for Naboso, Naboso was the textured mind body mat, the neural ball. We have many other products as well. We have sensory sticks. So you could do kind of like a weighted yoga with the hand stimulation, lots of cool stuff. Um, that is N-A-B-O-S-O.com, Naboso. And that Instagram is Naboso underscore technology. And that is something fun with that is that Naboso is actually a check word that means barefoot. So it's, yeah, I was wondering yeah, what, that, what that is. Yeah. Yes. And then for myself, my um, podiatry practice, if anyone is curious, is my name. So dremilysplickle.com. Um, and my Instagram is dremilydpm. Got it. Okay. And I'll include all those links for listeners in the show notes. Wow. My feet feel so alive talking to you. <laughs> Um, no, it's been great. I really, really appreciate it. As I said, I wanted to do this for a while and, you know, I had a list of questions we didn't get to, but as I said before, I like to just let things organically come out and I love the different directions we went into. So I know for myself, it was valuable and I am representative of yoga teachers out there to some extent. So I know for the listeners that they will find it helpful too. So happy new year. And um, it was great. And thank you so, so much. This will go live on Monday. So I will send you the link on Monday and you'll have it. And then I'll share it on my social media and on my blog and on my website and, uh, and all of that. Good. Amazing. Do you need those? You, you got the, what I had said, right? Of the, yes. Okay. Yes. And I can go to your Instagram and search yeah, around. You could, you could not, find I will email you and say, just give me the links, but okay. yeah, not a problem. Not a problem. Yeah. And then, yeah, as soon as you post it, then we add it to my, uh, personal website, but then we repost and stuff like that. So awesome. Awesome. Well, have a lovely weekend, have a happy Thank new you. year, and I'm sure you'll see me commenting on your posts on Instagram. So if anything, yes. <laughs> oh, awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Yes, of course. Okay. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to that episode. Before you go, I want to let you know about a new mini course I just created as of October 2021. It's called the Yoga Anatomy Blueprint Learning Program mini course. It's essentially an introductory version to my signature program that teaches you anatomy so that you grow your confidence in sharing cues and sequences and in all those conversations you have with your students. If you're like some of the yoga teachers I speak to, you might feel as if you don't have the time to do my full program. That's one of the main reasons I created this mini course, which will give you all the same steps in my signature blueprint approach to teaching you anatomy and will allow you to complete it in much less time. There are 10 modules each of about 10 minutes each, and the entire program walks you through mini lessons from the larger program. You'll leave with specific new skills that you can start to use right away. 
You may also leave with a keen interest in enrolling in the larger program because your curiosity and confidence have been stoked. For you, the podcast listener, I'm offering $5 off the purchase price of the mini program, which is just priced at $27, so the cost will go down to $22 for you. Once you complete the mini course, you'll see in the next step section how to get a $50 credit to put towards the larger program should you decide to invest in that in the future. To purchase the mini program, visit my website at barebonesyoga.com, click the link for online courses, and select the mini course link. When you check out before you enter your credit card, enter the code podcast and you will receive the $5 off. I hope you enjoy the program. I hope it stokes your curiosity and builds your confidence. Namaste.